from the dark recesses of my unconscious mind into the glaring light of objective reality. You are listening to the Dark Mind Podcast. Friends and familiars, thank you for tuning in to another episode where we explore the boundless realm of dark literature and film. On today's show, we have a writer that intertwines grief with the torment of denial. Her prose is dark and melancholic and masterfully conveys the nuance of suffering. She's joining me today to talk about her debut novella, Sleeping Celeste. So without further ado, join me as we delve into the dark insight of Alana K. Drex. Alana, welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you for joining me on an early Sunday morning. No problem. So as the tagline indicates, I am all about dark literature, and your dark gothic novella was a perfect blend of mental agony and treacherous behavior, not to mention that eerie cover. Yeah, Northwest Reader did amazing on that, didn't she? Yeah. So I'm going to begin the show by congratulating you on a job well done. Thank you very much. Well, the protagonist of the story, Marie, is what I would define as an anti-hero. She's going to Helen back in order to help her daughter. Yeah. But she's going about it in a very horrific way. <laughs> so, uh, oh, <laughs> yes. What inspired you to write a character that I would imagine most people love to hate? Right. <laughs> Because some people won't be able to relate to her, but honestly, I think a lot of people will be able to relate to her. Mm -hmm. And I was inspired partly because we all have that dark side to us, you know, not that dark. I'm yeah. not saying that. <laughs> but at least, at least not on a recording. We're not talking about that. <laughs> not that on here. No. Uh, <laughs> it helps us feel better about ourselves, I think. I think we like to read about people who are even more messed up than us we can relate and i love stories where usually they start out the characters more benevolent and like i'd say 90 percent benevolent you keep reading it it goes down and down and mm. down as you know what i mean you're like oh you stop you're like oh mm. and then like i mean look at lestat from ann rice's interview with the vampire now that was more retrospectively you found out that he started benevolent. Like at the end of that book, mm -hmm. all of a sudden you felt bad for him where at the beginning you're like, this guy's a monster. Mm -hmm. So that would be kind of the flip, which was really cool how she did that. And yeah. I love her writing, by the way. Yeah, Anne Rice. When did she pass away? It wasn't too long ago, was it? Last year. Last um, year, yeah. December 11th, I want to say, or was that? I'm not sure. I just know it was kind of recent. 
I think it was last year, the yeah. end of the year. Yeah. Not sure exact date. Yeah. A friend of mine, I think he went to a few of her parties, her Halloween parties. I think that she throws. Really? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. lucky guy. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, but I know what you're talking about with Sleeping Celeste because, you know, like you said, she's a little out there. She, her mind's not quite <laughs> right, but you kind right. of, you kind of understand it because she's dealing with the death of her daughter. But then it just, mm-hmm. they're like, wait a minute. Okay. I see what's happening here. This isn't, uh, <laughs> I still spiral. like her, but not as much, you know. <laughs> right. <So. laughs> oh, poor Marie. Well, in the book, As I said, she's in a severe form of denial about her daughter and goes to great lengths to maintain the illusion that everything's okay. Mm -hmm. So once the story progresses, we find that she's maintaining this illusion, not so much to strictly comfort herself, but more out of a sense of guilt. So was she truly trying to help her daughter or was she technically still pursuing her own selfish ends? Well, you know. <laughs> do I sound like a therapist? <laughs> when, you do. That's good. I mean, that means that you really were paying attention. Now, I think that, you know, definitely as a parent, you don't want to think that you made such glaring errors and you look back and you wish you could change some things mm-hmm. that you did. And I think that in this case, it was probably both like trying to definitely you know, make herself feel better, make some of that guilt diminish, but then also trying to help her daughter because, you know, sometimes you don't realize what you don't have until it's gone. Mm -hmm. And I mean, her daughter was somebody that I believe she really loved when she had her. She just doted on her and doted on her, but definitely she did want to also at the same time, diminish those guilty feelings so she could keep living as well. Hmm. So that was a really good question, by the way. Oh, thank you. Made me think, too. It was a really good aspect to the story. I was like, wait a minute, what's happening here? Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, a lot of Marie's issues seem to stem from the fact that she was unhappy with her life because she technically settled for her husband. And she did that in order to make her father happy because at that time it was looked down upon for a woman that was approaching 30 to not be married. So I've noticed that women that are being controlled are the subject of a lot of good horror stories. Yes, Uh, I agree. The one that immediately comes to mind is Rosemary's Baby. Oh, I love that one. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess you could probably say Carrie as well with her her crazy her uh, mother. mother. Yeah, definitely. So was the lack of control over her own life the primary reason for her behavior? And if so, were there any previous books or films that inspired you to use that motive? Yes. So, yeah, she was a woman who had grown up in the South in the mid 1800s. And she's always sat back and allowed others, usually the men, and the elders to make her choices for her. She wanted to keep them happy. It was just the way she was raised. She'd seen other women do this her whole life, I imagine, you know? It's a pattern that becomes normal for you, so you just follow it without thinking. But then once you're in that pattern yourself, you're like, wait a minute, I'm not really happy, you know? So all of a sudden, she's like, what can I do to make myself happy? But continue this image of this normal pattern. So 
you know, she finally questioned what happiness looked for herself. But I'd say the story of the yellow wallpaper by Charlotte Perkins Gilman is a good influence. It's that feeling of being trapped, Mm -hmm. you know, and she had that feeling of being trapped too for just periods of years. And it can have characters doing things that end up being dire and really affecting them just tragically. Mm -hmm. So you said the story of the yellow wallpaper? Yeah, it's a short story. It was released in the 1800s as well by Mm. a woman who had also witnessed these patterns playing out her whole life. She wrote about this wife who had a doctor for a husband, and he tells her that basically she needs to be in this room until she can calm down and present herself the way she's supposed to again in society. Mm -hmm. And she starts seeing these things in the yellow wallpaper, and it just keeps getting worse and worse for her. And I don't want to give away the ending, but I'll just stop there. It's a short read, and I think people listening, if they like horror, they would like this if they like that gothic vibe too. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting. Well, I'm a, I'm a big fan of the movie The Witch, and one of the salient aspects of that movie was the period-accurate dialect. Like, the mm. best thing to do is to actually put the subtitles on. Yeah. Because... Their accent and their sentence structure and their colloquialisms are just so period accurate and foreign to just the average person. It's hard to follow unless you have the subtitles on. I love that, though. Yeah. And your story takes place in, I believe, 1885, correct? Yep. Okay. Mm Mm-hmm. And I noticed that the way Marie addressed people was definitely from the Victorian era. So I was wondering, what kind of research did you have to do to get that down so well? Well, you know, honestly, I wasn't trying to write perfectly Victorian. Uh-huh. I I was hoping I was doing a good job, and I wanted to give it that flair. What probably helped me was I read Jane Eyre uh-huh. by Charlotte Bronte right before I wrote Sleeping Celeste. And I fell in love with the way she wrote and the way she had her character speak and just the way she described things, I didn't realize I had been missing that in some of my reading. So I'm definitely going to have to read some more classics, I decided. But thank you. Thank you mm-hmm. for saying that. I got that down. Yeah, I wasn't really sure I did. I was just trying to, but I didn't do much research at all. Well, it came off as very authentic and takes you back to that time period. Well, I thank feel. you, Charlotte Bronte. <laughs> <laughs> Have to Listeners at home, if help. you need to do some research, read, <laughs> who is it, Charlotte Bronte? Yes. Okay. Read, start with Jane Eyre. Jane Eyre. All right. Well, I noticed a particular detail was paid to the dress and the fact that people didn't bathe a lot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. It's kind of stinky. Yeah. If I remember correctly, perfume and cologne didn't used to just be accents to make you smell good after you showered it was supposed to replace deodorant and sometimes frequent bathing they also didn't really have an effective method for embalming so it didn't take long for dead bodies to start to smell yeah which is also detailed in the story in what way do you think these visceral details add to the horror of the story just like because we're not used to it and it just seems like a astounding thing to think that you know that's how life used to be. I mean, I'm not sure why, but it gets in the psyche. And then for me, my mind just starts thinking about 
well, if the body smells, you know, what's going on inside the body? And gross is definitely an element mm-hmm. of horror. So, Yeah, it's kind of like this oppressive effect that makes the discomfort synergistically higher. Yeah. Like one plus one equals three. <laughs> and it definitely didn't help the psychology of Marie when she's trying to pretend that her daughter is not dead. Oh, no. Where she smells like she's dead. But she does make her excuses. And, uh, you know, though, I read that they stopped putting as many flowers in a parlor with the dead body around the 1890s is when embalming got a lot better. Mm-hmm. So about five years after the book takes place. Damn the lot. But all of a sudden it got a lot better. But before then, they just had like apparently so many flowers in that parlor mm-hmm. with that dead body. They were really trying to mask that smell. Yeah. But they didn't have to do that anymore in 1890s. So yeah. as much. Now, they still did flowers out of respect, but they didn't have to make sure there was just a whole heck of a lot of them. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, that's interesting. I don't even know where the practice... I mean, it kind of makes sense. Flowers are beautiful, so you want to give them as a gift to somebody. Right. But I wonder if the fact that we send flowers to a funeral purely evolved from the fact that we used to have to use them to keep the smell of the body from <laughs> insulting yeah, everybody. Yeah, right. Like, I didn't realize that till I read that in my research. I was like, so it might have just started purely because it was necessary or nobody would be in that room paying the respects. I mean, everybody, everybody at a funeral stinking to holy hell, so they're wearing perfume and the body yeah. smells, so there's flowers everywhere. Tears are streaming down their eyes because it it's smells the, so bad. Yeah, it's not sadness, it's the smell. Oh. Oh. Uh, well, A little bit sadness, but some because of the smell, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, the catalyst for the story is set off by Jacob, the cemetery groundskeeper. Mm -hmm. And the cemetery groundskeeper is kind of a staple of horror stories that I've always loved. Me too. It's usually someone that doesn't get on well with others. So they work a job that provides solitude and working with the dead is perfect because the dead don't talk back. Right. (laughs) Sounds good to me. If I weren't a writer, I might look into that. Yeah. So do you have a favorite horror story character archetype? Favorite horror story archetype. Um, let's see. Just kind of a recurrent character that you find in horror stories. Oh, that I love to see. Okay. Let's, I do love creepy children. Creepy and children? And dolls. And dolls. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's so weird. A child's laughter oh. in the proper context is adorable. But at night, when there's nobody else in the room, <laughs> there's, there's or if you're little... taking your yeah, garbage out and you just hear, <laughs> you can't even see where the kid is. But you just hear this laugh. That my, would be bad too. My uh, fiance talks in her sleep, and sometimes oh. she will laugh like that in her sleep. <laughs> so I start, oh. I started calling her Annabelle. She's <laughs> like, you're freaking oh. me out at night, sweetheart. <laughs> oh. But uh, well, at least you like horror. So, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. you like scary things. So, yeah, it works. Good. Well, the story has an important supernatural element to it. And I'm curious as a writer, which do you prefer to read and write stories grounded in reality or stories that entertain the supernatural? Well, I do like both. But for me, it's supernatural all the way. I grew up in a really old house and I did have some experiences there. And so I don't discount supernatural as being unreal either, but I know what you're saying. 
I just connect with the supernatural. And Mm -hmm. so I like writing about it more. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess when I said grounded in reality, just not supernatural, like in the the material world, so to speak. Yeah. Now, is that the same for both reading and writing? You like to read and write supernatural or does that change? With reading, I'm more of a eclectic reader. I like real things. I like medical mysteries, true crime, um, historical fiction. I like a lot of that. Now, I haven't read much romance. I am thinking about reading more of that, but I just really like to write horror for some reason. Mm -hmm. So like you've written like a dark gothic horror. Have you ever thought about a dark I don't know if it would be called dark romantic horror, dark romance, so to speak. Um, it's funny you say that. I mean, I have these ideas come into me quite a bit. And sometimes, you know, it's annoying because I'm trying to get one thing done. <laughs> but I had like this idea for a dark romance thing that I told a friend the other day. So I might, I mean, it might happen something mm-hmm. in that subgenre. Cool. Well, Due to the dark subject matter and the fact that you yourself have children, did writing the story affect you negatively in any way? Well, I mean, I sympathized and, you know, it makes you like, wow, I don't want to ever be in Marie's shoes. You know, I don't ever want to lose a child. That would be the absolute worst thing that could ever happen. Mm -hmm. I really did sympathize with her and it actually made me want to spend even more time with them. So awesome. Yeah. So you didn't at any point in writing the book or after finishing it, you didn't feel like you kind of needed an emotional palate cleanser. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, there's that too. I mean, I did feel that way actually (laughs) because it's just like, so heavy like i'm not gonna go read pet cemetery now you know after i yeah. read that book yeah. that might be a little much <laughs> that'd be like the worst <laughs> thing to go to after that yeah trying to remember i know judith sonnet told me whenever she finishes really hardcore scenes she'll sometimes have to watch the monsters mm-hmm. and hmm, there's two other people i asked this question and their uh, methods are escaping me but, oh, I think it, the monsters would be a good one. The though. monsters, yeah. Yeah, like classic stuff. I think it was Braden Riddick that said he had to just sit back with some whiskey on the rocks or something like that. Nice. <laughs> That'll work That's too nice. in a pinch. <laughs> I guess I haven't found a good palate cleanser for myself yet. Yeah. I do draw, so I would probably do that if I had the time to. My boys are pretty young, though, so no, yeah. I guess just spending time with them would be mine. I mean, mm-hmm. and feeling good that hey, I'm spending time with them, and that's something she regretted, you know. Yeah. So. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, in the afterword to the story, you talk about how the story is based on three real life events, and they say the truth is stranger than fiction, so. Are there any other real-life events that you'd like to write about? As far as writing within the framework of other real-life events, my current writing projects don't really include that, but it's not something that I wouldn't do. I just stumbled on these true-life events. And actually, there's more than just those three instances, too, which is shocking that this actually happened, you know, back in the 1800s that they actually did that. I don't want to give it away. Mm -hmm. 
people just, you know, if they're interested, they can read the afterword because yeah. I explain and I cite my sources. But if I found something that spoke to me that really happened, and then, of course, I'd have to twist it because I like the darker side of things. But I would not be against doing that again, for sure. Well, you mentioned at the beginning the cover. Who did the uh, cover again? It was Christina from Trueborn Designs. Um, okay. She's on IG too, so she's at nw.reader. But I wanted to have that cover with Celeste looking out a window, you know, mm-hmm. and I just wanted it to be kind of ambiguous. But if you look further, you can tell what's going on. I like those covers where you look at them. Mm-hmm. And Sometimes you don't know at first, but when you read, you're like, oh, okay, that's what that cover is about. And she did an excellent job. So, yeah, she really I, did. She always does. Yeah, I follow her work as well. She actually did. Yeah. She did the uh, podcast graphic for Generic, the Generic podcast. I didn't know and that. I see her, her ready made stuff she does all the time is amazing. I know. I don't know how she does it. She's magic. She really is. Yeah, she definitely just the color scheme is just I know. Just Doesn't it scream gothic. like yeah. 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 And Halloween and Gothic. Just mm-hmm. like spooky. Spooky season. Listeners at home, I'm holding the book up. We're admiring the cover. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you can't see this, but this is what we're doing. <laughs> this is what we're doing. Well, writers and filmmakers of horror often report strange occurrences during the production of their craft. Did anything strange happen to you or around you while you were writing this book? I did think I heard things in the hallway, and I don't normally hear things in the hallway. You know, I live in a smaller house, so I don't think this was just because I was honed in more because I was writing something scary. I truly think that, and I've always felt this way, like the more you focus on supernatural, like sometimes you're able to actually you know, experience that world a little mm-hmm. stronger. And I had some strange and creepy dreams that were so real too. Mm-hmm. One of them was a sleep paralysis dream and it was just oh, really I bad. I get those like twice a year, but this one I was in bed and I was looking up and I was in the same position as I was sleeping. And there was a stairway that appeared from the bed and it went up through the ceiling. Mm-hmm. And then at the top, there was this open door and there was this woman. You could only see like from her waist down and you could see her hand on the doorknob. She had this black dress and it looked Victorian and you could see her feet and her shoes. And like she was just there and there was this feeling of foreboding that she was going to come down and snatch me up the stairs to Mm. wherever she was. And I kept trying to wake up and I couldn't wake up and I would just keep falling back into that until finally she laughed during one of those. She uh-huh. just let out this long, really creepy, evil laugh like she knew I couldn't really wake up and she was just toying with me. I hate sleep paralysis oh, and they're always creepy for me. Usually it's like a demon in the room for me. Yeah. You know, I can't ever remember what I'm dreaming after I've woken up. But, you know, I just remember the struggle because you can't move. So like yeah. the struggle, like, you know what's happening and you just want to fully wake up so you can move. So you're just kind of like, yeah, it's like you're focusing your will, like you're trying to perform telekinesis or something. You're just concentrating so hard. And it's like yeah, I usually it 
I usually wake up with my head cocked to the left, like uh-huh. kind of sitting up. Yeah. But I read that, and I've only been able to do this one time. I read that even though you're paralyzed, you can still make fists like this. Oh. So if you start yeah. making a fist, relaxing and opening, mm-hmm. it'll wake you up. I've only managed to do that once. It just never occurs to I me all I the other I hope I can time. remember that. Yeah. I hope I can remember that because mine always have demons in the room or <laughs> these dark figures and shadows and uh-huh. they're coming to get me like every time. Yeah. God, I hate it's those. horrible. I have to get up and like get a midnight snack or something because yeah. it's so unnerving that I'm just like my heart's pounding. I'm like, oh, I don't want to sleep ever again. I'm just getting. I know up. it takes a long time to gather your courage to just like relax again after something like that. Yeah. Bad. No. Yeah. Let's just move on from that. Please. <laughs> <laughs> well. If there was someone that said, hey, I'm coming out with this new novella, novel, whatever, or like a a publisher doing a collection of short stories, and they asked you to write the foreword, who would that be that would just, you would fall over dead if this particular <laughs> person asked you? I love and respect so many authors in the community, but I don't know if he would do one, but Ronald Malfi is just great. I love all of his books. and trying to think who else of course you know huge names too but like i respect a lot of indie authors too so like uh jack harding i loved ripper country if he did something like that with other authors i would flip you know Uh yeah i guess more in the realm of indie authors like people you know and yeah yeah um i mean my buddy aw mason for sure okay well We've talked about your previous work that you co-authored, The Scampering. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me about your contribution to the short story anthology, October Blood? Yeah, it's called Brighter Than a Jack Lantern Smile. It's about, um, I'll just give you a little synopsis, very short here. Woman wakes up on the ground on Halloween night, and it looks like her backyard, but she begins to get the suspicion it's not, and... It's just a very creepy feeling for her. And then things start to happen and things add up. But, you know, the cells from October blood, I have to say, too, are going to Calgary Food Bank. And I think $400 so far has been donated there. So nice. I think that's good, too. And thank you, everybody who's bought it and taken a chance on our stories, too. There's a lot of amazing authors that I'm next to in that book. Mm-hmm. So do you actively keep an eye out for submission calls? Yeah, but. Now I'm starting to kind of step back a little bit from that. You know, Marcus Hawk, he approached me about October Blood. And at the same time, I was beginning to write Sleeping Celeste. Mm -hmm. So I kind of put a pause on that. And I love contributing to anthologies, but I think that I'm really wanting to focus on possibly getting a full novel out there. You Mm -hmm. know, it'd be amazing if I could actually write a novel, I think. I've done short stories, now a novella, and now like that novel is just looming mm-hmm. in the distance. Yeah. Do you have any idea what you would want to write a novel about? Any story ideas? Well, I can tell you without telling you <laughs> that because <laughs> um, <laughs> I kind of like to leave a little bit you know, of a mystery, but it's going to be a character that is in Sleeping Celeste. Oh, okay. Nice. Look forward to that. Yeah, thank you. 
Well, in order to get into the mindset that you, I guess, kind of had to get into to write prose with such deep existential pain, do you have to draw from your own personal experiences of hardship or are you able to get to that place by creative skill alone? Well, not for my own true experiences, but a situation pops into my head. I'm like, how would it feel to actually be there in that situation? And let me explore it. But, you know, I hope that never happens to me. But it's just something my mind has to work through. I've thought of this situation and now I have to, you know, see what would happen in that situation. So it sounds like creativity also involves quite a bit of empathy. Yeah, I think it does too. I mean, it's kind of mean of me. I like to put my characters in these tragic situations. (laughs) (laughs) So is it really nice of me to do that just to see, to test my empathy out? (laughs) (laughs) Sounds kind of twisted. No. I mean, we're (laughs) writing horror. What are you supposed to do? (laughs) Exactly. It's fine. Well, what is your writing medium and atmosphere? Am I looking at you in your writing atmosphere right now? Nope. This is the living room, actually, but I like to write on the couch or propped up in bed, but just somewhere, you know, cozy. I don't like to sit at a desk, and I write on a MacBook Mm. and call it Mr. Magic. God bless the MacBooks. Yeah, I know. I, you know, as soon as I got this MacBook, too, it was like magic. That's why I call it Mr. Magic. Uh I bought it from Billy Ray, who has written Nicest Parts of Hell. He was looking to sell his, and... I needed one. And, you know, since we talk a lot on Instagram and stuff, he gave me a pretty good deal on it. Uh-huh. But since I've had it, I've written The Scampering, Brighter Than a Jack Lantern Smile, that was published. And then Small Town Fiends, that was published. And A 3B Halloween. And then Sleeping Celeste, all in the same year, all in 2022. Wow. So I've published four things in this year alone ever since buying this. That's why I call it Mr. Magic. Because I was just like, wow, you know, so things it, are popping. It came already with the presence of having the nicest parts of hell, a great right. novel written on it. And that's so what it like, me and Billy Ray joke about. We're yeah. like, you know, it, it knows what it's doing. It knows how to, uh-huh. you know. And you've just added stuff. to it over time. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> oh. I hope this isn't like one of those horror movies where like, magic happens but then there's some nefarious thing in the background <laughs> like, <laughs> like every time you write a great story a year of your life gets shaved off or something like that oh my gosh that's a good idea for a <laughs> for a book actually you, you take that no royalty free <laughs> maybe that's why he got rid of it oh my god maybe that's why oh. billy ray he knows he knew and he's not telling me oh shit thanks a lot god. i thought he was my friend too Billy Ray, you son of a bitch. Billy Ray Middleton Jr., (laughs) what are you doing? (laughs) Well, which book radically changed your view of what could be accomplished with the written word? I'd say The Ghost and Mrs. Muir by R.A. Dick. Her real name was Josephine Leslie. She wrote that in 1945, and at that time, women still didn't really want to give away that they were a woman, you know, writing. Hmm. So it gave them more of an edge to be published. And it was also a black and white classic movie, so you can watch it. But that book showed me how, you know, haunting and beautiful strings of words and the right combination can be. And it's not a horror book, by the way. Mm -hmm. It's not. 
I mean, it has the word ghost in it, but it is tragic. It is haunting. She loses her husband and then she falls in love with a ghost when she moves to this cottage by the sea and the ghost of a man of the sea. And just that feeling of the unrequited love, desire, it's really well written. You know, that language, I can't explain exactly what it is, but that book is just is really good. It's got a place in my heart. So, and the movie's not as good, by mm. the way. So, the movie's a little bit, I will admit, lame. <laughs> it came <laughs> off to me. I was like, really? Didn't do that good of a job. I mean, I'm sure people out there who have seen it might say, what are you talking about? That's a classic, awesome movie. But the book really pulls at the heartstrings. Yeah. I mean, I know people think you're pretentious if you say, oh, the book was so much better. But I mean, <laughs> it pretty much always is. There's a right. reason for that, you know? Yeah. You the, pick uh, up more of their emotions and underlying reasons for those emotions, which is what I really love. Yeah. Well, you mentioned drawing. Does drawing or some other hobby or anything other than reading you feel makes you a better writer? Um, You know, I do, like you said, draw. And sometimes I'll draw things and then I'll make little fictional scenarios in my head. And I might kind of use that character later in something, but make them different. Mm -hmm. So there's that. But, you know, other than that, I do have a pretty tame life. You know, I'm a mom of two boys. That doesn't sound tame. <laughs> That's true. I mean, if you look at two it a boys. different way, then no, it's yeah. not tame at all. But <laughs> I do like to get into people's heads if I go out in public. You know, I think a lot of us writers do like to people watch, though. I don't think I'm different in that way. Just like people watch and say, you know, what's going on there? And like, how are those people really, you know, just... Mm. I like to eavesdrop too. It's not, not a good quality, but when you're sitting at a restaurant, especially before the COVID days, uh-huh. you know, cause I still don't really go out much, you know, mm-hmm. to restaurants. But I remember before COVID days, I'd sit there in a booth and I would just kind of listen mm-hmm. to other conversations. I do the same thing. I mean, it, I think everybody does, but it's just, yeah, I don't know. We're the only ones that'll admit it. Yeah. <laughs> You get that uh, experience of Sonder that other people are living the same complex life that you are. Yeah. 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 And you can understand. Yeah. And kind of, I don't do it for nefarious reasons. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. You're not trying to catch the last four digits of their social or anything. You just. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> just, you know, I like it. I don't know why. <laughs> yeah. If you don't mind me asking, how old are your boys? Nine and four. Nine and four. Holy shit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> My, uh, me and my brother are 18 months apart, and man, my mom had a, whew, it was a rough time. You know, boy, <laughs> I bet that was. Boys break so much shit. Oh my gosh, my littlest one, you know, my youngest one, I mean, my oldest one was never bad about breaking. Yes, I'll go back. Yes, he did. He broke one of his Christmas presents, like as soon as he got out of the package when he was like three years old, uh-huh. his grandpa gave him this fishing rod. And he just like started pulling at it and like he just broke that thing in no time. We were like, no, 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 no. Before, you know, we could get to it. It was Uh done. Oh, like, like, no. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Slow motion. Oh, yeah. What's the name of your MacBook again? Magic what? Mr. Magic. Oh, Mr. Magic. Yeah. Keep Mr. Magic away from the boys. (laughs) Oh, I do. I I tell uh, 
Billy, I put it in a bag, you know, it's a laptop bag, and then mm-hmm. I put it in this cabinet. So yeah, I don't there ever you go. have it just setting out somewhere. Beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Well, so this is a question. I wanted to add it to my list that I ask everybody, and I'm going to ask it until somebody tells me yes, I think. Okay. <laughs> Do you enjoy or have you ever met any writer that enjoys the editing process? I don't know if I enjoyed it, but I was happy with the editing process on Sleeping Celeste because I added so many details. I mean, there was a scene that was completely not there that I would never have thought of if I had just sent it out, you know, somewhere and let somebody else do it for me. Like reading through there, I found little tweaks I could make, just like wording. And I was like, oh my gosh, this reads so much better. So I was just very appreciative of that writing process for sure. But at the same time, I was like really antsy to get it done with. I was like, oh, I just want to get this out. Yeah. 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 I'm just trying to suss out that one person that's got like OCD where they actually enjoy the editing. Oh, yeah. It's amazing because I didn't look forward to it. (laughs) Yeah. Because like a lot of times I'll ask, like, what's your least favorite part of the writing process? And hands down, everybody says, oh, editing. I hate editing. So <laughs> yeah, I'm going to find that one person, I swear. <laughs> I don't think I hate it, though. So oh, okay. at least I don't hate it, but I'm more neutral. So you need to keep looking. Keep looking for that person. Yeah, I want somebody that's just their eyes light up. <laughs> right. I want to know that person, too. <laughs> well. Which of your writing influences not only influenced your writing, but also influenced you as a person? Um, I'm going to go kind of way back, I think, on this question. I think I was eight years old and my dad got me the book. There's a Hair in My Dirt by Gary Larson. Uh He wrote those comic strips for a long time and he was an illustrator. And so he illustrated the book too, but this is a very dark book. I mean, it is funny, but it's very macabre. It's not funny, funny. Uh There's some horror to it. And I don't know if my dad read the book before he got it to me. (laughs) (laughs) I was eight. Uh It was a picture book. Maybe it's just like, hey, here's a picture book, Uh you know, but he probably knew because he loved Gary Larson. But I just think that it influenced wanting to write kind of quirky and humorous and dark and just the twists in that book because there was a big twist too Uh and so it makes me want to pull off all of these things in my writing and I think it helped advance my dark sense of humor too it's not for everybody Mm -hmm. having a dark sense of humor but it helps me (laughs) (laughs) I, I like it I think it keeps me sane personally yeah yeah, mine and my fiance, we have the darkest sense of humor. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of our date night thing is uh, watching the darkest psychological horror we can find. Do you find yourself laughing at some things that you think maybe somebody else wouldn't have laughed at in a horror movie? Because I find that with myself and I'm like, what's wrong with me? Like, I can be afraid, but I also think it's funny sometimes. Like, I'll tell you exactly what I'm talking about. I watched that movie Smile Mm, mm -hmm. and there was a part in there. I don't want to give this away. It's a brand new movie, but there's a part in there that, yeah, I'm not going to say anything though. I I don't want to give it away. I hate when people give things away. (laughs) But basically there's a part in there that you laughed at. It was funny. I I laughed and I don't think I should (laughs) have. I did. (laughs) Well, I, 
the only example, I mean, I do, yes, I've done it quite a few times mm -hmm. uh, or do it probably regularly. <laughs> but the only thing that's really sticking in my head is, you know, in my opinion, the Halloween franchise went to hell a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but, you know, when I was growing up, I watched those movies mm -hmm. and me and my fiance was my girlfriend at the time. It was Halloween, and we wanted to go to a theater because we hadn't been to a theater since COVID. Right. So we wanted to go to a theater on Halloween mm -hmm. and watch a horror movie. Mm -hmm. And this one theater that, you know, you can buy dinner and you got reclining seats and blankets and stuff that we always went to. The only horror movie they had was Halloween Kills. So Okay. I haven't seen that one yet, but I know I understand, you know, behind it what you're thinking. We went in with the expectation that it would suck, but not only did it suck, there was like at least four parts that were so ridiculous that we laughed at the top of our lungs. Like we were the only people in the theater, I think, unless there was, I thought I heard somebody snickering, but they were probably laughing at us, laughing like jackasses. I think but, I need to hang out with you guys. Because, <laughs> I mean... It's kind of like the screen movies. People are going to, you know, not agree with me. But that last one I saw and I knew it, you know, I loved it from my teen years. But I saw that last one. I was like, that one sucks. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but I'm still going to watch them all. Yeah, but, yeah. And you can still enjoy them and laugh at them. Yeah, there's <laughs> just like the one part that we laughed the hardest at was Jamie Lee Curtis was laid up in a hospital bed. But she was like, no, no, I've got to finish this. And so... <laughs> A nurse had left a syringe and a vial of some strong opiate uh -huh. just lying on the bedside table, which is a ridiculous premise to begin with. That stuff is so closely monitored. No nurse is just going to do that. <laughs> so she gets up. Wow. She gets up, grabs the syringe, sticks it in the, the vial, draws up just this massive amount of some sort of strong opiate, <laughs> grabs it like a knife. And just oh like like from the ceiling, just brings it down and stabs it into her ass as hard as she can <laughs> and screams at the top of her lungs. <laughs> like, What the fuck are you doing? Oh, my God. <laughs> that is. Wow. <laughs> and they kept on I saying. I got to watch it. Yeah, they kept on saying, this <laughs> ends tonight. <laughs> so now anytime. Oh. Anytime we're upset about something, we'll say that this ends tonight. <laughs> then you can't really be upset anymore. I know. After that. It's amazing. Wow. That's well, awesome. Speaking of movies, mm -hmm. if Sleeping Celeste was adapted as a screenplay, who would be the best choice for director? Um, I really don't know many directors, but of course, you know. I would love Steven Spielberg too, but I don't know if that would be the correct choice. What do you think about Tim Burton? Um, ooh, yeah, Tim Burton would be, I think he'd be pretty good. You know, Billy Ray said that maybe Rob Zombie would be fun too. Ah, <laughs> yeah. It would be funny at least. Yeah, it would be incredibly. Be different. Yeah. There was... <laughs> what do you think that would look like? The, uh, the violence would be intense. Yeah, there is quite a bit of violence in, uh, yeah. Yeah. I like when they put, I don't know if you do, but do you like when they put modern music with like time periods that doesn't fit? Like, remember like A Knight's Tale, Amadeus, uh, <sighs> things like that. I don't know for this one, but I have another book I'm writing that I think it might be cool with, but well, I don't know. 
I guess I would say possibly because the one thing that's popping into my mind is The Great Gatsby. Mm -hmm. But that's because in the movie, when they were having a party, they were dancing to modern day music. Yeah. Which makes no sense at all. It's one thing <laughs> to have modern day music as like a soundtrack. Right. But when at a party at his house, you know, it's yeah. flapper girls with the pillbox hats, you know. Awesome. Yeah. Time period specific, but right? they're dancing to hip hop music. Oh. <laughs> like, what the hell? Oh, okay. <laughs> it doesn't make sense. No. But now. off putting. Yeah. But now if that was the soundtrack, that would be a different story. Yeah. Yeah. I can see yeah. that. So. Do your friends and family read your writing? And if so, who is your biggest fan? Well, not all my friends and family know that I have books out and stuff out. I'm really a secretive person, actually. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, I was afraid of my parents reading The Scampering. Have uh -huh. you, did you say you read that yet or not? Mm -mm, no. Okay. There's one part in there in particular. I'm sure people who've read it would know that I wouldn't want my mom to read that. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> anyways... Now they do. I mean, they have both read Sleeping Celeste. And so now they could just Google my name and know, you know, mm -hmm. what I put out, which is fine. I mean, I'll have to grow up and not care what our parents think of us at some point. Right. Yeah. I'm in my 30s. But mm -hmm. uh, anyways, yeah, I'd say, I mean, they're my biggest fans, I would say now, mm -hmm. now that I've let the cat out of the bag. They've read Sleeping Celeste. And so my parents. Oh, <laughs> Yeah, not in my case. My uh Oh no. No, my mom is uh similar to Carrie's mom. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so uh yeah, she probably wouldn't like the subject matter. Probably not. I just keep that keep that from her. Right. So Right. I would too. <laughs> but uh <laughs> late night confessions with Vince and Alana. <laughs> nice. Uh, <laughs> So what inspired you to start writing with the intent to publish and what was going on in your life at the time? Well, yeah, I wrote little stories as a kid. I stapled the notebook paper together, you know, mm -hmm. and I would draw my covers because I've always liked drawing too. And then I just write that cover on the inside. I don't really remember what they were about, but I do remember one line I used in one of them. And I'm just, even now, I'm like, what a lame thing to write. You know? <laughs> Why did I write that? I wrote, don't rain on my parade. Hmm. I was like, I was eight years old. Don't rain on my parade. That sounds like, <laughs> Why? Why did an eight-year-old write that? Uh -huh. <laughs> I don't remember what it was about, but it just said, don't rain on my parade. I know that's a saying, but I just find that one lame. Uh -huh. But I've always enjoyed writing. And I didn't really write horror then when I was eight. But like I said, as I got a little older, I started to kind of feel that alone feeling, mm -hmm. you know, of being out there on that farm and not having many friends over. And that's when my mind really started imagining these characters. And I didn't write them down right away. But eventually I did start writing snippets and journals because mm -hmm. I did have a lot of stuff going on in high school around that time. So I was pretty busy with choir and band and volleyball. But as I got older, I was like, I need to write more. You know, I just, I need to write these characters out more. Mm. So. You know, you said, don't rain on my parade. <laughs> <laughs> I swear to God, like a week ago or a couple of weeks ago, I was at my mom's house and my two nieces were over there. Mm -hmm. And 
the one that is, I think she is nine. I forget what she did, but she just said, I'm really regretting my life choices. <laughs> like, what did you say? That's the most grown up thing I've ever heard I you know. say. <laughs> that is. She sounds like my son, though. My nine year old. Oh, yeah? yeah, he's kind of emo sometimes. <laughs> Yeah. He really is angsty already and jaded. I'm like, whoa, you're not a teen yet. <laughs> I know. But I don't know. It was just so <laughs> so, so out of context. I was like, yeah. wait, what? <laughs> Catches you off guard. Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. Well, what is the most beneficial aspect of writing for you? Um. Well, again, you know, I really like creating characters that I feel different things through. I really put myself, try to anyway, put myself in their place. And then also I like when people connect to my writing, of course, who doesn't as a writer. It's nice to hear feedback. And Emily Terry, who's on Instagram, when she discussed Sleeping Celeste on her booktube, she really connected to it in this highly personal way that I didn't imagine anybody would be able to. And it just gives me goosebumps remembering that one because it was a very tender book too. And she is an amazing person. She's on Instagram too. And awesome. she's working on a book as well right now, which I can't wait to read. So at Emily L. Terry. Nice. My buddy. So tell me about your canine buddy. Have you seen him? I, on, I mean, if, pictures. yeah. If that's yeah. the. Uh... He's a Boston Terrier. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, he's got a half mask, and we named him Phantom because of that. It reminded us of Phantom of the Opera, so we wanted a spooky name. He's something else. He's always wanting attention. He tries to compete with the boys. (laughs) (laughs) So sometimes I feel like, you know, just like I'm just being pulled in all these directions, but my nine-year-old actually trained him to climb a ladder oh nice he's like a circus dog too sweet well a ladder up to his play equipment Mm, and then he goes down the slide (laughs) (laughs) he's like one of the boys too essentially you know awesome yeah yeah we have a multi-poo that loves us to death like won't give us a give us a minute to i'm not complaining it's just i'm emphasizing how much clingy. He, yeah, yeah clingy there you go clingy he he's, is. he's clingy too so i understand it is nice sometimes though you're just like okay <laughs> well but when i take him out on a walk he does not like people oh like anybody he will <laughs> lash all, out at them <laughs> i have oh, to like no. pick yeah like if if uh somebody's oncoming i've got to like pick him up and hold him otherwise he'll just like go off the try to get off his leash i had a dog like that too i had one when i was a kid a dalmatian and she was the sweetest thing ever and we tried to acclimate her and you know same thing if we were walking she saw somebody coming she was even that way as a puppy you had to pick her up Mm -hmm. and here's this little puppy just snarling yeah vicious looking Uh and so like we didn't even try it when she was an adult nope (laughs) (laughs) yeah the only thing i can figure is my fiance had him five years before we met so maybe he was like her bodyguard you know so maybe maybe he can't tell the difference between me and her is how he's supposed to act it's like danger keep all strangers away you know yeah yeah i mean could be never know what's going on in their head so definitely well what do you think of the movie martyrs oh 
you know, I actually haven't seen that, mm-hmm. um, but I did see a preview for it. It looks cool. Should I see it? Can you handle some intense violence? I think so. Okay, because it's pretty, <laughs> it's pretty hardcore. I mean, it's you fr- scare me when you say that like that, and you know I'm a horror writer and reader. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, but this is like scared. This is like French extremism, though. Like this is oh really intense. Yeah. Oh well, but. The reason I ask everybody about it is obviously it's my favorite movie, but if you like psychological I love it. and you you can withstand the violence, this movie will blow your mind. I can for that. Yeah. I'm gonna watch it. This movie will I'm gonna watch blow it and I'll mind. let you know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Make sure the kids are nowhere. <laughs> to okay. <be> found. <laughs> <laughs> lock the door get a babysitter send them do, off huh? to mom's house you know <laughs> send yeah send exactly. them off to grandma's house <laughs> oh yeah yeah i won't let them see that but yeah i'm excited to watch that now yeah so since you read and review a lot of books from the little you've gleaned about me from our conversation so far what is the next book I should read? And I trust your judgment, but just for shits and grins, I need you to sell me on it. Sell you on the next book? Sell me on the that, next book that I should read. Okay. Yeah. I would say I always recommend this one, but after you and I talked about the creepy children, mm-hmm. I'm going to recommend it again. Okay. Uh, maybe you've read it, though. It's called Plank Children. No. By Michael Schutz. Okay. And that's S C H U T. Z and he's at Shuts Fiction on Instagram. Oh my gosh, this one. Okay, I'm going to tell you the premise very briefly. There's this man, he's just lost his nephew about nine months ago. His nephew was mangled in a car accident. Mm-hmm. And then one night he's uh, on his couch. He's been drinking because he's been through a really bad breakup, lost his job. He's going through Facebook and he sees this picture on his sister's Facebook account. And it's a recent picture. And it's a picture of his nephew standing there with the family. Mm -hmm. He's not dead anymore. Hmm. He's like, how can this be? So he goes right over there. I'm not going to say what happens after that point. But he ends up in this uh, old orphanage. It used to be a big church. And just these really creepy things happen there. I don't want to give anything away, but... It is amazing writing. I love it. I don't know who would read that as a horror reader and wouldn't love it. Mm-hmm. And it's just one of those that has gone right under the radar on Bookstagram, uh, mm-hmm. which happens a lot with really good books, you know. Yeah. That is one that if you're a horror reader, read it. Plain Children by Michael Schutz. Got it. All right. I'll watch that movie and hopefully you'll read that book and then we can compare talk notes about that. Yeah. (laughs) Will do. Hey. So what is your goal for the coming new year? Um, As far as writing would be continuing to write about the character that I'm putting in this next. Could be a novella, could be a novel, but it's a character from Sleeping Celeste. So I'm really excited about that. I want to do that one and then hopefully go back to this book about vampires that I was writing. I started back in 2021 on that, but that's when I was just also looking for a lot of submissions, you know, for Mm -hmm. short stories. And somehow it just kind of fell by the wayside. But I think that could be a really strong story too. 
And by the way, that's set back in the 1800s as well, about a bunch of female, it's like a coven of female vampires that are taking control of this town and the men in this town. So don't want to say too much about it, mm-hmm. but I really want to get to that one. So I do have some projects, but I'm trying to write these longer books now, mm-hmm. which I've never done. So who knows how long it's going to take me to come out with those. Hopefully I'll at least get one of them out in 2023. All right. Well, Alana, it has been a pleasure talking to you. It's been fun. Thank you for having me on. Absolutely. You mentioned quite a bit as far as your upcoming writing goals as we bring the show to a close. Is there anything you'd like to plug? Maybe kind of summarize everything you mentioned? Okay. So just if you like gothic horror, and it is grief horror as well, get Sleeping Celeste. I can find it on Amazon. And also my Instagram is at alana.k.drex have the scampering with aw mason it's a short story 25 pages it goes to helping the animal welfare institute and i think that about sums it all up outstanding listeners at home all links are in the description and alana thank you again for joining me thank you vincent and thank you to everyone that tuned in If you liked today's episode, please be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Stay healthy, stay sane, and as always, thank you for listening. See you next time.